0: Hi everyone, I'm Ben, and I'm Will, and uh, welcome to this series of Will and Ben, the Wildlife Men. Hi Ben, how are your legs? Oh well, they're actually feeling amazing to be honest, like I would not have told that I have uh, run a marathon (laughs) three days in now, but they were, they were a different story the day after, I have to say. Oh my goodness.
1: (laughs) Yeah, to give everyone a bit of context, Ben and I have just um, done our fundraising run for the Barnsley Bird Observatory and you've raised a ridiculous amount of money, haven't we?
0: Well, it's it's over fifteen hundred now, and considering we only set it up, I think like three weeks ago or more, it's it's pretty amazing considering the circumstances of the you know the coronavirus as well. And yeah, amazing. Thank you so much, everyone that has donated. Um, that's <laughs> that's really awesome.
1: And so, um, well, do you want to tell them your story, Ben, about your run you did? Because Ben and I we didn't actually run together in the end because there's like some worries about traveling right across from Wales for the. For the coronavirus etc but um Ben you did your complete you stuck to your words and you uh, completed your your run right around the scene, right
0: yeah it was quite an experience I am um, so I had uh Jack Burton who you know from university so he was here and we both set. we yeah we both managed to complete uh it was just over a marathon in the end so it was about 45 kilometers um and it was quite funny because we got up in the morning and it was it was classic wales it was an absolute torrential downpour of rain and windy and we were like oh my goodness you know we'd psyched ourselves up for doing it at 7am and we were up at 6 <laughs> and like we were like looking at the forecast and like oh should we do it what what we're going to do you know it's really wet the paths are going to be slippery and everything and we were we were like this for the entire morning until about half 10 and we were about to make the decision of like okay we just need to make the decision should we do it today or not and then just put our minds at ease because you know we were sort of really psyching ourselves up for it and then the rain finally began easing and we just felt like all right let's do it and then we just like within 10 minutes we decided okay we are actually going to do it we rigged up and then just headed off I think it was about quarter past 11 in the end um and then yeah it was I it was really cool running with Jack because he's been training in London hmm. and the contrast of the terrain to where he's been doing his runs you know we're now in you know on the coastal path going right around the you know the wild tip of the flint peninsula with the sea and the cliffs and the bird life and everything and he was just like for the first maybe 20 or 30 kilometers we were really enjoying it and it was such an awesome experience and then gradually started getting a bit tougher because we had you know over we had over a thousand one hundred meters of ascent to do um within the run <laughs> so that really took it out of well both of us really but especially jack because he's not had any any hills to train on
1: plus, um that's the 30 but kilometers you'd already run is such a long way <laughs>
0: yeah it was awesome it was really great and we had you know chaffs there were common sandpipers and kestrels and sparrowhawks sort of flying alongside us at points and the wildlife really was fantastic um and then towards the end the rain came in and we just had the grind of that last sort of five or ten k to see ourselves through back on the road as we closed the circuit and that was probably the hardest bit just that last push when you're feeling pretty knackered and you you're in the rain and it's just on tarmac and uh oh, that was the hardest bit but yeah what a, it's an amazing feeling to 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 sort of finish something of that distance I know you did a you know you you did do a 50 kilometer earlier this summer but it's yeah it's an amazing feeling covering that distance just on your own two legs isn't it oh,
1: it's so it's just so much fun isn't it it just makes you smile yeah, it's so exciting um but yes, oh, it sounds such a good time and all, all those lovely hills and seeing... You had loads of chuffs, didn't you? You said that um, like 40 or so... Group, a group of 40 or so chuffs, didn't you see, going over? It's almost like you're in the mountains. That's right. Chuffs.
0: Yeah, no, totally.
1: But yes, yeah, so while ben, was, ben and Jack were running around and um, I was waiting all day as well because I was feeling very pretentious and aesthetic and I wanted a good sunset while I ran and uh, <laughs> <laughs> and so I started and I, I was only ever going to do around a half marathon because um it was going to be in the evening and I've got another big race at the weekend and sort of feeling a little injured so I was going to get it quite a lot shorter than Ben's absolutely mammoth 45k but yes I started off and I started around six or so thinking oh, it later time and set off with my wonderful dog, Una, who is brilliant in all ways. But, um, (laughs) so we set off, went over the tops of the Keriog, and we got about maybe 500 metres up the hill then, before Una decided that six o'clock was far too near to her bedtime for her to keep on running. And so she just lay in the grass and refused to go any further. And we just, just kind of, fight any pull on the lead and she'd actually allow herself to get dragged along by the lead if I had done so. And and it was so funny, like anything I did, she just wouldn't wouldn't continue up the road until I turned round and ran back down towards the car. And then she had all the energy in the world. She was bouncing, happy, barking, just most pleased dog, just didn't want to run with me. And so (laughs) I got back down to the car rang mum and she very kindly came to collect this horrible dog and then i continued up and ran over a few different um little voils and little hills and just across the heather moorland and it was just really beautiful there was something was setting full of these purple clouds of heather and i got to about the halfway point um before the light levels really dropped and I really couldn't see anything but it was and the bird life was quite good as well there's lots of skylarks uh, lots of meadow pipits, uh, a black grouse at one point and a snipe um really nice things and then as I was slogging back through the dark and and just like with my torch on just having to sing really loudly to keep myself going uh, a barn owl flew very low over my head and yeah, it was such a nice to be out almost completely on trails and just feel very happy to be out. Um, although when I got back, I was very hungry and Una wasn't in the slightest bit ashamed. And so she had her, uh, oh. <laughs> but yeah, no, it was great. And, um, we'll keep the, uh, keep the, we'll keep the fundraiser open for a little bit when we, um, maybe after, until I run my, um, the fell race of the weekend, maybe I could run that for the bad jobs as well. Give them a little bit more.
0: Yeah. I think that sounds like a good idea. Yeah. We'll keep it open for that because, um, that definitely deserves, uh, a bit of <laughs> donations. I'm sure that would garner some as well. It sounds like a pretty grueling race that you've got this weekend, but the, um, the subject of, of today's uh, podcast from you is something that goes at a slightly slower pace I believe.
1: A slightly slower pace although I was fairly slow running up the hills in the dark I'll tell you but um, yes this, this week is such a rubbish <laughs> analogy anyway um, <laughs> this week we're going to be chatting about slugs and it's just something I was absolutely amazed when I found out that these slugs in the UK weren't really from here um and yeah they just weren't really from here And it's just quite amazing the story of how these slugs got to the uk anyway let's get into it let's do it it is wet dogs are returning from walks covered in mud wellies are now needed to check the moth trap in the morning and mum has been complaining about the slugs eating her lettuces Slugs are often thought of as just slimy creatures who enjoy nothing more than eating through our favourite garden plants. However, there is so much more to know. Not all slugs are the same. Some slugs will completely ignore plants and are in fact carnivorous. The Atlantic shelled slug, called testocella Malgi, for example, will feed almost exclusively on earthworms, slipping through the burrows created by the worms in the soil They will chase the poor creatures down before slowly gorging themselves. These testicella slugs are especially odd in the slug world because they have tiny shells attached to their back end, a remnant of their evolutionary past. Slugs are in fact highly specialised snails, which over time have nearly all abandoned their own shells. This enables them to move through the soil and into much smaller gaps than their bulkier snail cousins. As a result, however, they are more prone to dehydration. To avoid drying out, during the daytime, slugs often retreat under stones where they can be found in large groups. Slugs have poor eyesight and use chemoreceptors to find their way around by smell. Gardeners often complain the slugs specifically aim for the most prized young plants, and this is probably true, as slugs are able to detect plants that are edible from some distance, and so will avoid distasteful older plants that have built up toxic defence chemicals in favour of the young, tender lettuce leaves. Larger slugs can travel many metres in a night, but will almost invariably return to the same refuge in the morning, following their slime trail scent all the way back home. The United Kingdom has over 30 distinct species of slug, ranging from one of the smallest, the meadow slug, called Deroceras levy, which is about 15 millimeters long, and this slug eats mostly plants, to one of the largest, the black slug, Arianata, 14 centimeters long, and eats mostly everything, making it an excellent decomposer, aiding soil health, of course. Also, the black slug, if attacked, and this always makes me smile, if attacked, this slug contracts itself into a hemispherical shape and shakes slowly from side to side, aiming to confuse the predator into not attacking it. Although, of course, I don't know how much this slug actually benefits from this defence mechanism. Slugs vary hugely in terms of colour, too. From the speckled white Kerry slug Geomalacus maculosus, which incidentally is our only protected slug species by European law, to the bright yellow lemon slug Melacolimax tenellus. One of our commonest is the dusky slug Arian subfuscus, which is found in nearly all habitat types. The dusky slug, which is one of my favourites, is a medium-sized slug with a deep golden brown top which graduates to a pale yellow. The slug is flanked by two dark lateral bands and leaves no colour in its mucus as it moves, but if you pick it up, the slug exudes a characteristically dark yellow substance that readily stains fingers. This slug, as previously mentioned, is common in the UK, but this was not always the case. 15,000 years ago, The Deventian Ice Age smothered the British Isles. Ice sheets kilometers thick covered the land, glaciers grinding out U-shaped Scottish glens and Welsh glens. Farming and the domestication of animals was barely a spark in the minds of the humans who were busy painting the achingly beautiful ibexes on the walls of the Neo cave, or drawing reindeers with smiles on their faces in the caves of El Castillo in Spain. The Davencian ice sheets were just, had just brushed the borders of the Cornish boundaries, leaving the county relatively ice-free. The terrible cold affected slugs greatly, and, with the possible exception of a few Cornish individuals, the species present in the UK before the last ice age, including our dusky slug, were completely wiped out. However, with time, the ice began to melt, and the temperatures warmed, leaving an accessible land bridge known as Doggerland between the Netherlands and the coast of the UK, across what is now the North Sea. As the ice retreated, woolly rhinoceros clumped up over the Scottish hills while aurochs and wolves moved into the plains, enjoying their newfound space. The dusky slug is thought to have survived this glaciation period in Europe, by clinging on in small refuge populations in areas such as sheltered alpine valleys. These areas remained wooded and seasonally free of much of the ice. The dusky slug's ability to survive this period was also aided by its high cold tolerance. As the ice receded, the slugs moved from their refugia and recolonized much of the continent previously covered by ice. Researchers have mapped this species recolonisation route and have shown that the dusky slug, as well as many other species, crept slowly across Doggerland and began to re-establish themselves in the UK. For a period of time, slugs could happily pass between the continental Europe and the British Isles, grazing on the great plains of Doggerland, now beneath the North Sea. However, With the melting ice and the land rising in the north, rising due to the removal of heavy kilometres of ice, sea levels between Britain and the continent rose until 9,000 years ago, when the land bridge was enveloped by the first few waves of the North Sea. This left the slugs who had journeyed to Britain trapped and unable to return. The immigrant history of Britain's slug species is reflected in the level of endemism present today. Of the over 30 species, only a handful of slugs are not found on nearby continental Europe, leading to the conclusion that only the slugs residing in the warmest parts of southern England survive the cold. All other species have either been introduced by humans, particularly in the last hundred years ago, as gardening has become a mass international market, or wandered their slow, slimy way to the British Isles across Doggerland many thousands of years ago.
0: Whoa, well, that is, that's so cool. I love that. It's like, I think one of the things we wanted to really show in, in these podcasts is those species and maybe the groups of animals that often don't get much attention and things, and I think slugs probably suffer from that. Probably the most out of most invertebrates, I would say. So to have a such a fascinating story behind those is, is brilliant.
1: I love how it just sort of shows the immense passages of time that the Earth has gone through. Like, imagine how long it would take for a slug to get across from the Netherlands to the UK. It's just ridiculous.
0: <laughs> That's quite a thought, actually. I like that. <laughs> no that was really
1: directed would it It would have just been a slug ambling
0: or sliding along and getting
1: distracted over many many
0: generations i'm sure but oh it's so funny (laughs) amazing and just that thing of sort of would it classify it as sort of migration because i know there's there's quite specific um criteria criteria exactly for what dictates like whether something is a migrant or not or is that more A sort of uh dispersal in a way or what would you say i'd say that there it's
1: definitely a dispersal there isn't really a return leg of slugs but yeah yeah it could be something to look at (laughs) maybe there's slugs going from their sort of their their homes in your garden and then back maybe there's like mini altitudinal migration in mountains oh yeah maybe there is maybe slugs do altitudinal migration in mountains What an amazing study
0: that would be. There we go. That's our, that's your next PhD sort
1: of. Ideal.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, slugs themselves, uh, I know they're often quite beleaguered for their impacts on, you know, people's veggies and eating things like in our garden here, you know, we have to constantly search some of the, the veggies that we have growing to uh, make sure that slugs don't eat them, but they are actually, you know, Obviously, play their part in the ecosystem, and they're very, they're really important decomposers. Um, aren't they?
1: Yeah, of course. Um, Especially the ones which are real omnivores, the ones that eat everything. They, yeah. they just help to. There's, there's a few slugs that, and I think this, the big black slug, Arianata, has some special enzymes within its body that help it break down the cellulose and things in plants, which yeah. really helps to break down the breakdown of leaves and things. To make the soils healthier, and as we know, like the soil health in the u k it's really quite terrible in a lot of places, so although slugs may eat your um cabbages in your garden, it could well be in a more natural environment that slugs are playing a vital role in improving soil health um probably not quite as good as worms and things, but certainly um certainly they play their own role, and yeah, no they are, and I really quite like slugs as well there's some ones that you can you you identify by stroking their backs and if they wobble from side to side then it's one species and if they don't wobble then it's another there's a wonderful book actually called um a field guide to slugs by the field studies council fsc and i thoroughly recommend you all get it they've got descriptions of the, the speed of slugs as well and ones which are quite you know they're quite quick to move and others sort of median speeds and then the ones which
0: are the slowest ones are described as rather sluggish and it's just full of things like that (laughs) brilliant i'll have to get a copy of that i remember um Going around the campus um, at, Penrind, <laughs> at with you when I was, you know, when we were studying there with that book, searching for slugs and things under bark and under rocks, and it was it was really enjoyable. And some of the yeah, you know, yeah, people, yeah,
1: and dragging uh, all the other poor students around with us in the rain.
0: <laughs>
1: yeah, we were we were
0: quite cool. <laughs> oh, Do you think I remember there was something about bumblebees um, and sort of migrating and heading out to sea from East Anglia in a direction over the North Sea towards like the Netherlands and areas like that. And do you think this sort of behaviour that I know has been observed is something to do with like sort of maybe an ancient migration that was in place when there was actually more land and somewhere like Doggerland that still existed?
1: Mm, uh, i imagine if that's true yes so there are records and people sat on the netherlands of dutch coast and in some points in the spring they see thousands upon thousands of um mostly white tailed bumblebees coming across the sea from from um, east anglia they think and so understudied we've got and it's something actually in part of my PhD, we've got a grant in place now to go and study it in Sweden because there's also um. records of bumblebees coming up north in the springtime and then going back down south. And it's probably just the queens that do this. Um they go north to make their nests um to take advantage of the flowers flowering further north in the um late spring, <clears throat> and then the they go through their life cycle, have their nest, and then the new queens may go back down north back down south to overwinter. And then maybe they'll they'll in the springtime they may go back up north. And but so little is known. And this um, records of them coming across or perceived potentially coming across the North Sea is a really interesting one. And oh, it'd be so cool if there was some sort of ancestral memory, because we don't really know how migration really works how they follow the how they know which way to go i expect that it is probably um it's not very romantic but it's probably just the fact that these bumblebees want to go north-ish from um from the east anglia and go somewhere where there may be more space or wherever and but it also doesn't really make sense because north from east anglia isn't really netherland so maybe maybe there is isn't an ancestral memory of a land bridge and it's just genetically programmed in their heads that there was a short distance between these two places at one point and that's just kept going like the bumblebees are just programmed to fly north northeast in the springtime and it'd be so cool just to know everything wouldn't it but (laughs) potentially potentially that is a reason and potentially Doggerland was a really important like starting place for a lot of um migratory behaviors but yeah we really don't know but it's something that definitely speculate for hours upon
0: (laughs) you know it's an amazing amazing thought really and um yeah no I really enjoyed that Will and Hopefully, um, this time in a couple of weeks you'll be back out doing your continued insect migration research for your PhD in the uh, Pyrenees, right? Uh,
1: yes. Hopefully, we've just just got permission or almost permission to go out and have our essential research out in the out in the mountains,
0: and I'm so excited, Ben. Cool. That's going to be amazing. I can't wait to hear more of the findings from the work. It's just such a fascinating area. Awesome. Well, thanks a lot for that, Will. And uh, we'll see what we can come up with for the next one. But I hope everyone enjoyed that.
1: Yes, thank you. And we'll see you next time.
0: Speak soon.